So the passage for our scripture was read earlier uh, by uh, Scott as he came up, and it's 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the end of chapter 9 through the first part of chapter 10. So I encourage you to uh, turn back there in your copy of God's Word if you have one. If not, there are those underneath the seats in front of you, and it's also uh, printed there uh, in the bulletin. But we'll be looking at that passage, and, and uh, before we do, I just want to read again that last part, um, chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's pray together. Father, would you come now and by your spirit, would you be powerfully present with us and in us and in your word Would you work your will in our lives? Lord, equip us as your people to know you, to walk in faith with you, and to resist the lures and the temptations of the world and our own flesh and our enemy, the devil, through the power of your Son, Jesus Christ, the life which we have in him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do not underestimate the power of evil or of your sinful desires to lead you to give in to temptation to sin. And do not overestimate the power of your personal resolve or even your place in the body of Christ to insulate or exempt you from giving in to the temptation to sin. These warnings and the truth of this passage, which was read earlier, were brought close to home this week as as I met with pastors and elders in our presbytery for the sad occasion of removing a friend and a fellow pastor from his office for sin that disqualified him from continuing on in the ministry. It was a sobering reminder of the seriousness of sin and the susceptibility of every one of us to fall to the evil desires of our own hearts. And isn't it true how often it's the places in our lives where we feel most confident, where we feel most capable and, and secure that we can be most susceptible and subject to temptation and even failure. The successful businessman who risks uh, making one more big deal and ends up in financial failure. The strong, invincible athlete who goes out partying after a, a big game and winds up in jail for assault. The diligent, disciplined student who's striving to maintain a, a high GPA ends up expelled for cheating. The person who grew up in the church was, was always active in serving Christ decides to walk away from the faith. The well-known, influential pastor or ministry leader who becomes embroiled in some sexual scandal. We've all seen 
real life examples of that saying and we probably have all in some way experienced real life examples of that saying pride goes before a fall and yet each of us has our own blind spots and our own places where we think to ourselves "Mm, I could never do that that could never happen to me Well, the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit of God, would say to any of us here this morning who proudly thinks that we stand firm to take heed lest we fall. Take heed lest we fall. The Christians in the city of Corinth were proud of their freedom in Christ, as we've been hearing as our, in our study of this letter. Their lives had been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there were those in the church who were eager, who were happy to exhibit and exercise the, the freedom they had in Christ in ways that, that showed their spiritual wisdom and their maturity and being able to freely engage and, and interact with the surrounding culture out of which They had been redeemed. And for many, that meant having no qualms about attending festivals or feasts where where food may have been sacrificed to the pagan idols, many of which they may have formerly worshipped. And after all, they knew that idols were nothing. It was just food. And they never would go back to worshipping those idols again. So it's no big deal if they are actually participating and interacting, maybe even with good intentions And as we've seen in these past weeks, the Apostle Paul responding to some of their questions around this was was agreeing with them in principle. Yes, an idol is nothing. Meat sacrificed to idols is nothing in and of itself. But nevertheless, he challenges their practice by saying, be careful how you exercise your freedom, how you live in line with the gospel And how that might impact others around you. What you do, the way you live your life, can cause others actually to stumble into sin, even if you are not. True gospel freedom, he's been saying, means being willing to lay down your rights and restrict your freedom in order to show love for your brother or sister and to win others to the gospel of Jesus Christ, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then at the end of chapter 9 and on into chapter 10, which we've read, Paul warns them about the serious personal danger of of spiritual pride and presumption that can lead us to compromise our walk with God. And to do so, he points first to his own life as an example and then to the experience of the Israelites in the wilderness as both a a positive and a, a negative portrayal or example and seeking to equip the saints at Corinth and to equip us here this morning to endure and escape the temptation to sin. And so I want to I break down this passage into three lessons Paul gives us for doing so. And those three are, are first, live purposely for God, live humbly with God, and live dependently on God. Purposefully, humbly, and dependently. PhD, you can remember it that way. Paul wants us to be grad students in enduring and resisting temptation. First, he talks about living purposely for for God. In the closing verses of chapter 9, he uses the analogy of athletics 
to illustrate his approach to life and ministry, which he's just gone through earlier in the chapter, talking about how he lays down his rights. He's willing to, to forfeit his freedoms, to become all things to all men in order that he might win some to Jesus Christ. And Paul was a sports fan, like many of us are. And he was well aware of the fact that the Corinthians as well were sports fans. The Isthmian Games, second only to the Olympics in stature, were held there in Corinth every two years. And the Corinthians took pride in their sports, undoubtedly had many of their favorite competitors. They would understand firsthand the dedication and the discipline, the preparation and the training that went into the pursuit of competing at what was, at that point, the world's highest level as these athletes would come in and descend on Corinth before the games. And we know from just having sports be a big part of our culture and, and life uh, in our world today, athletes are driven. They are driven by a single purpose, to achieve the goal, to, to go after the prize for which they are competing, whether it's at the Olympic level for the gold medal, in some team sport for the championship, in some personal uh, individual sport for a personal best or to be ranked as number one. They undergo, all athletes undergo rigorous regimens of training and discipline in order to get their minds, in order to get their bodies in shape, not just to compete, but to win, to win. And Paul has just said that his single purpose in life, everything he does, is not to win a trophy, not to win a championship, but to win others to Christ with the gospel. That he might save souls, that he might share in the blessings of life in Christ. And while he was constantly concerned for the souls of others, he was also keenly aware that in the midst of being used by God, there existed the very real potential that he himself could fall into sin, the sin of pride, and as he says, be disqualified, be taken out of the race. And so he says, I approach my life like an athlete, purposely preparing and training myself, disciplining my body, exercising self-control in order to receive what he calls the imperishable prize, namely eternal life in Christ Jesus. And you know, one of the greatest temptations I think that we as believers face as we journey, as we run the race of, of life together is we become spiritually flabby. <laughs> Usually when we first come to embrace Christ, there's this freshness, there's this newness, there's this life change. Even, even at times when we see God do a work in our life that just kind of revives us and and it's so evident and powerful that we're consumed with this desire to know Jesus, to share him with others. We can't get enough of, of studying his word. We're praying regularly. We're talking about God with our coworkers. We're, we're uh, telling people what has happened in our life with others around us. And even though we still have a long ways to go and we might not know everything, we're kind of like rookie athletes. <laughs> and we just, we, we love the game. We would play for nothing. And we are eager to do anything we can to make it to the big dance. And so we're running hard after God. We're running hard in the gospel. But after a while, the Bible becomes familiar. 
We've weathered some trials and struggles and been beaten up a little bit. We've tasted maybe spiritual victory and seen God at work. And, and at times, our walk with God can become a bit routine. And as a result, we face the temptation to let our guard down. We face the temptation to sit back and say, it's time to, it's time to coast. It's time maybe to retire from the game. We begin to live and rely on our own strength and we start to get a little spiritually lazy. And when we do that, and I think all of us at times go through periods like that, suddenly we can find that we might be off course a little bit in our relationship with God or in our relationship with His people or with others in the body of Christ. We may be growing a little weaker in our faith and we can become, as Paul says, like runners just out for a, a meandering jog or, or, or just shadow boxing in the gym. But Paul reminds us, he reminds us that, that for Satan, there is no off season. You can't call a time out for the temptations and the trials that life brings. Our sinful hearts don't, don't go quietly into the, their corner in between rounds. And that's why so often in, in the scriptures we're exhorted over and over again to, to stay alert, to be ready, to fight the good fight, to stand firm in the battle, to run the race with endurance, to press on to gain the prize, to train for godliness, to keep our eyes fixed and focused on the goal for which Christ Jesus has called us. You think about it, athletes work like crazy for 15 minutes of fame. The winners of the Isthmian Games didn't even get a gold medal or a big endorsement contract. They got a little ring of leaves put on their head that would probably you know, wilt and be gone in a matter of days. Christians, we live for something far greater than any temporal payout. We live for an eternal purpose. Life in Christ, the reward of heaven, the blessing of walking with God and independence upon God in this life to the promised land that he has given to us in Christ. And Paul says we need to stay disciplined. We need to be self-controlled lest we be disqualified, lest our walk does not measure up to our talk. Now, Paul's not talking about running or fighting here to earn salvation. Christians do not compete against each other for eternal life. We're not all running for one thing that only a few of us are going to get. Nor can we ever do enough to win that kind of prize. We're on a team. We've been chosen and called and redeemed by God's grace in Christ. But how we run the race, how we persevere in the, in the battle together, how we play the game proves the reality of our place and position on the team. The way we live shows that, that Christ has won the victory over sin and death and that we live our lives now not for ourselves and the things of this world, but for him and the things of heaven. The danger is that we can become presumptuous. We can take that salvation for granted. We can presume upon God's grace and come 
to the finish line thinking that we deserve to be here or that we don't have to do anything to get here and we can find that we've been disqualified. And Paul is mindful of that. There's tension here. <laughs> he, he's saying, I, I don't want to get there and find out that I've missed the boat. <laughs> and that's like Jesus. He lives to sacrifice his freedoms, to forgo his rights, to lay aside those things which might hinder or, or weigh him down, to live his life purposely for the glory of God and the good of others. And that's the call of Christ, to walk with him, to walk in him, in this life, towards the goal which he has already won for us in heaven. So living purposely requires self-discipline and self-control. And an athlete knows his weak spots. He knows the areas of his body. He knows the area of, of his game that he needs to work on. He is willing to sacrifice eating certain foods, to sleeping late in the morning, to taking time off from training, to constrain and control his body in order to pursue that goal. And so a good question for us is, where are your weak spots? What is it that tempts you to get off course? Maybe it's just a little indulgence here and now that quickly becomes a habit. Maybe it's some struggle or, or trial you are facing that you don't really want others to know about or you're, you're hesitant or, or ashamed to, to let others in on. Maybe it's an attitude of pride, thinking, hey, I really don't have any weak spots. I'm doing just fine, thank you. Usually it's the place where we think we have everything under control or we think we have nothing under control and it's not really... Uh, 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 something to, that, that I feel like he can even enter into that we find sin comes in and begins to hinder us and make us weak. And so we are equipped to endure temptation when we can seek to live purposely for God in our lives. And secondly, Paul says we need to live humbly before God. At the beginning of chapter 10 in verses 1 through 5, Paul turns not away from the example of his own life to the example of our spiritual forefathers. He gives a picture here, if you will, of what it looks like to actually be disqualified in the race. Paul turns to, to speak about the Israelites as they were miraculously delivered out of slavery in Egypt and brought through the wilderness to the land promised to them by God. And note here that Paul, writing to both Jews and Gentiles, he speaks of our forefathers. He sees all as having been grafted in to the people of God and the heritage of God's people. In Christ, we are all descendants of Abraham by faith. We are all heirs of God's covenant promises. And thus there's this, this continuity Paul begins to unpack here that, stress, that he stresses between Israel and of the old covenant and the church under Christ in the new covenant. And God's covenant is one covenant that is fulfilled in Christ. And that's reflected in the, in the language and the analogy that Paul uses here. He stresses that, that all of them, our forefathers, received the blessings and benefits of God's deliverance and provision. They were all led, he says, by the cloud of God's glory. They were all brought by Moses through the Red Sea. And notice Paul uses the language here of baptism. He's using, he's using uh, New Testament kind of uh, terminology. 
as well. He says they were, they were baptized into the cloud and in the sea, into Moses. They were identified and united with Moses as, as mediator of God's covenant through these events in a similar way that baptism identifies and unites the believer with Christ. He says, they all received manna from heaven and, and water from the rock which Moses struck in the desert. And again, he calls this spiritual food and drink and makes the link with the Christian's provision of the bread of life and the living water in Christ's blood on the cross that's reflected in the sacrament of communion. Indeed, Paul notes that the rock of provision for them was none other than Christ with them and, and providing for them. Now, this is significant because Paul, applies, as he applies this language of baptism and, and the Lord's Supper to the Exodus experience of Israel, Paul, like Jesus himself, is understanding that, that all that went on in the Old Covenant and in the people of Israel was centered in Christ. He takes a, a, a Christocentric view of Scripture. These were not just ancient events in history of a forgotten people. There is vital connection here between what the Israelites went through and what the church today is going through. And at the center of it all is the, is the power and the presence and the provision of God for his people through the one who was to come and who has come and who will come again, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. This is why Christ could say that all things in Scripture were concerning him. This is why when we preach Christ, we can preach Christ from every, every book of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. But Paul's point here is not to dive into Christology or go into a long theological discussion. His point is that all of them experienced the deliverance and the presence and the provision of God, and yet with most of them, God was not pleased. They were overthrown in the wilderness. Literally, their bodies were scattered in the desert. And it's somewhat of an understatement because in reality, only two of that whole generation, Joshua and Caleb, entered into the land. Not even Moses was permitted to enter into the promised land. Now, again, Paul's point here is not to start a, a debate about who was saved and who wasn't saved in that generation. I have no doubt we will see Moses in heaven when we get there. Paul's point is to say the God of the Corinthians and the God of you and me is the same God as the one who led the Israelites out of Egypt and into the desert. And he takes sin, he takes idolatry, he takes pride and presumption very seriously. And the experience of God's grace and his supernatural provision for his people, it does not spare us from the judgment of God against sin and falling back into idolatry, immorality, impatience, and impudence against God. This is the truth that stands behind such commands as work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Strive to make your calling and election sure. The deliverance and the salvation of God, which are only by his grace and provision, are also the means and the motive for being able to live humbly before God. 
And so what happened? Paul tells us, well, ultimately it boiled down to giving in to their desires. They desired evil, he says in verse 6. Sin can be characterized as misplaced desires. Temptation is a play on our, our desires and how we respond to that desire determines whether we give in to that temptation and desire and do what is wrong and desire what is wrong or we stand firm in our godly desire and our godly dependence and trust in him. Paul gives four examples of how the Israelites fell to temptation and gave in to these evil desires, all of which would hit home for the Corinthians and the situations they were living in and dealing with in the church, as well as hitting home for us today. He gives four examples. First, he says, they became idolaters. And here Paul quotes from the incident with the golden calf at Mount Sinai, which you can go back and read about in Exodus chapter 32. God had delivered the people out of Israel. Moses had gone up on the, on the mountain to meet with God and to receive God's direction. And he'd been gone longer than the people had expected him to be gone. And so guess what they did? They pressured Aaron to make an idol for them to worship. And Moses came back and finds them dancing and feasting around this idol and burns with God's anger against him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has ascended to heaven. He's promised us he will return, and he is with us now by his spirit. But it seems like an awful long time, doesn't it? How will he find us when he returns? Second, Paul notes that some fell into sexual immorality, referring to an incident in Numbers 25, verses 1 through 9, where the, the Israelites slept with Moabite women and began to offer sacrifices to their God, the God named Baal. And God responded with a plague that wiped out thousands. You know, God calls us to exclusive devotion to him with our hearts and that is pictured in exclusive devotion to his ways with our, with our lives and with our bodies. And oftentimes how we do that is, is reflected in the things that are so important to us. The things that we would actually worship over and above God. And thirdly in Numbers 21, Paul says they came back impatient with God and Moses. And put God to the test by saying, you know what, we had it better back in Egypt. <laughs> This is pretty tough out here in the desert. We kind of liked it back in captivity. And as a result, God sent a horde of snakes into the camp and many were, were bitten and died. Do you ever look and think life seems so much easier maybe before you became a Christian or for those who aren't Christians? And lastly, in several places in Numbers, we read that they constantly grumbled and whined about their circumstances and again brought upon themselves a plague that resulted in death. Know oh, how often we can find ourselves prone to grumbling and complaining. And so while we might, not, we might like to think that we'd never dance around golden statues or sleep with prostitutes or prefer comfort in captivity over struggles and freedom, or question God's goodness with grumbling and complaining. You don't have to look very far in the church. I don't have to look very far in my own heart. To see that there are vestiges of these sins lurking. 
And there is constant temptation, there's constant pressure to indulge in the idolatry and the immorality and the impatience and the impudence towards God that still at times lives within us. Now, why does Paul go over all these instances of God's judgment on his own people of Israel? Isn't that just stuff that happened in the Old Testament? You know, we, we, we don't, that, that doesn't really apply to us anymore. He says, no, no, these things were meant to be examples for us. Twice in verses 6 and again in verses 11, he notes that these were not just isolated incidents of history. These were types. These were, the, the, the word there literally means forms and, and patterns that were meant to, to instruct God's people and particularly to instruct us as the church. They were written down for us so that we would learn from and be shaped by the experience of those who came before us. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I read about the Israelites, I read about the Exodus and all this stuff that happened in there, and I think, how stupid could these people have been? I mean, they had seen God literally deliver them out of a, a, a captivity, the most powerful per, uh, ruler in the world. They had watched a whole sea part before them and walk through it. They had been provided with, with bread and, and, and water in the middle of a, a desert in miraculous ways. They had been delivered from enemies who were way too more powerful and strong than they were. And yet they still rebelled and grumbled and complained and turned to other gods and, and all the things, the pressures they were finding against them. How could they possibly have done that, I find myself saying sometimes. And then I remember, I'm no different. <laughs> I am no different. And you are no different either. We've been given all these blessings and more. In fact, we are among those upon whom Paul says the end of the ages has come. We are living in those times that the people of the Old Testament only dreamed about. We have seen the Messiah. We have been given power and the, the Spirit of God in us in a way that Israel could only imagine and only saw periodically. And yet we are just as susceptible and vulnerable to, to idol the temptation of idolatry and immorality as they were. We are just as quick to grumble and complain about our circumstances as they were. And therefore Paul says, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, humble yourself before God. Humble yourself before God. Learn from those who have gone before us. When you read about Israel's sin and God's judgment, put yourself in their sandals. Learn the lessons that they learned the hard way. Don't look upon the sin of others with a holy condescension, but rather look at your own heart in light of their sin with a holy distrust. And remember, God still judges sin the dangers of worshiping the false gods of this world of of giving into the desires of the flesh of thinking we know better than God or complaining and grumbling against him are as real today for his people as they were then and God does not tolerate the sharing of his glory or the abusing of his gifts by his people and so if we would stand firm against temptation in our lives then we must humbly 
We must live humbly, acknowledging that apart from God's grace and power, we are capable and even liable to fall into the most unthinkable of sins. And God has given us, in His grace, countless examples, not only of those who have fallen, that we might avoid their mistakes, but thankfully, also of His own grace and redemption, that we might not despair. And the ultimate message here is that we need not despair. It's the third lesson of this passage. Live dependently on God. If we are to resist and stand firm in the face of temptation, we need to depend on God and His grace. Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, your situation is not unique. Don't face the temptation with the attitude that nobody understands or nobody knows what you're going through or nobody has to deal with this like I have to deal with it. It feels like that sometimes, but God says you are not alone. If you're experiencing it, you can be sure somebody else, probably somebody sitting in this room, has experienced it as well. And the scriptures are given to us to, to remind us and to show that. But more importantly, God himself knows it and he understands it because Jesus Christ himself came down and entered into our world and was tempted in every manner just as we are. But he didn't give in. So whatever you're going through, whatever temptation or test you find yourself in, you are not alone. Jesus has borne up under it in a greater way. And he is not only our greatest example, but he is also our way of escape. God does not leave us to overcome temptation on our own. He is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. If we're to live victoriously in the face of temptation, we must live utterly dependent upon God and His gracious provision of escape. You do not have to give in to temptation. God has provided a way out. Better yet, a way through the temptation. Notice it doesn't say that God will remove the temptation, but rather he will give us the grace and the strength to stand up under it, to endure it, to face it without falling to it into sin. And what is that way? Well, at the root, it's the removal of sin's penalty and power through Jesus' sacrifice for sin on the cross. When, you are, when you're facing temptation... And the desire is there to pursue your own will, to seek your own glory, or to think, I, 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 I've got to do something in order to, to get myself out of this because God doesn't care. The cross is there to remind us that God has loved us in Christ with an everlasting love. That he submitted, Jesus submitted to the will of his Father. He emptied himself of glory, became a servant. He laid down his life for us. And therefore, he is for us. And he will, will he, his will and his way are best. And he will do all that he can to provide in those times. If God has not just saved us from the penalty of sin 
and given us eternal life in Christ, but has also freed us from the power of sin, will he not give us all we need to glorify him in life, even through suffering and hardship and temptation? You see, friends, the great escape which God has provided from temptation is the love of Jesus on the cross. When we face dangers, toils, and snares, Jesus holds wide his arms and he says, come to me. Bring your burden. Bring that weight. Bring what it is, that desire, that inordinate desire that is tempting you to to walk away from me. I will take them and give you rest. I will bring relief. And when we truly see God's love for us in Christ, when we hold before us the cross of Jesus and the resurrection and the life which he has given to us, it holds a greater desire than any other to live for him. He has borne our sin, he has delivered us from evil, and he will provide the means by which we can resist and flee evil and endure temptation in him. So when we face temptation, the first avenue of escape is to fix our eyes on Jesus. I know one of the greatest tools for me in facing temptation is to simply pray for God to show me the cross and to remind me that it is my sin that put Jesus there. And it is his love that kept him there in my place and gives me life and joy and freedom to live for him. But living dependently on God does not mean we just sit around and wait for him to take care of things that tempt us. Often God's way of escape comes through the things that we've already discussed. Living purposefully, disciplining our bodies for for godliness and righteousness. Living humbly, confessing our sin and turning to Christ. Recognizing our susceptibility, fleeing idolatry, immorality, and sin. We live dependently on God by trusting wholeheartedly in the means of grace that he has given us through his word and prayer and fellowship with his people. Being united to Christ and in communion with the body of Christ is a great fortress against the onslaught of temptation and sin. And we'll look more at that next week. So how can you participate in the great escape? How can we be equipped to endure the temptations that you and I face daily in living the Christian life in a sin-filled world and with still sin-tainted hearts? Live purposely. Live your life in line with the gospel. Pursue the crown of life which Christ has purchased for you. Live humbly. Don't overestimate your spiritual strength. Don't underestimate the wiles of Satan, and the desires of the flesh. And take heed where you think you stand. Be aware. Look for weaknesses in your life and see where you think you are strong. And then learn from those who have gone before us. God has given us many examples, and we see other examples day by day. Pray for God's grace to see yourself in the shoes of others and to guard against making same mistakes. And confess your own failings, thus living dependently upon God, trusting him wholeheartedly to keep you from temptation and look to the great escape that he has already provided in the cross of Christ. When we fail, and we will, we can come to him and know his forgiveness, know his grace, know his love, 
and be strengthened to go back into the race stronger. He knows what you're going through. He's already endured it for you. And he will give us strength to stand um, under, up under whatever we might face. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for both the warnings of your word as well as for the promises of your grace. You are a holy God and we are a sinful people. But you, who were without sin, became sin for us in order that we might become righteousness before you. Holy Spirit, equip us and teach us to live in that righteousness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.